Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us today on an episode in which a lot of frustrations will be had. It's been a while, I feel like, and this may be inaccurate, since we covered just a killer. I could be wrong, because my memory is about as long recently as maybe a butterfly. I truly have no concept of time (laughs) anymore. So I'm excited because I do really classically love just this single serial killer story or just like a mass killing story. You guys who've listened to the podcast know this. Um, So when we chose this case, I was pretty down to do some research. Yeah, I was really intrigued by the details and you guys will obviously if you stick around find out why um but it's a man who i would say he snapped but then we learn more about his history and it seems like he kind of snapped in a lesser way before yeah but he really just kind of lost his shit and it the whole case was so unfortunate but that we go into a lot of stuff about landlords mm. and i feel like a lot of people Rightfully so, have frustrations. If you guys ever have rented or are currently renting, there's always going to be a little frustration with your landlord, and it's really important to know your rights as a tenant. Yes, which is a good point, Katie. And I'm sitting here, you're sitting here, in my apartment, and I was reading and doing this research, and I don't know any of my rights off the top of my head. And I was just thinking that today, I was like, oh, If I'm going to be put in a situation like this, which I wouldn't be because I'm a responsible tenant, but things happen, would I really be fucked? Because I can't make an argument for myself, you know? (laughs) I think part of the problem here, too, is that this man had a ponytail, and you should never, ever, ever trust a landlord with a ponytail if he's male, okay? (laughs) This guy... And not even really the ponytail part. It was a greasy ponytail. Unkempt. He borderline Q-tip of a human. Oh, that's a good one. Really? Yeah. Oh, you're so right. He really is. And with his actions, borderline Q-tip. And I say that with a lot of sadness because he did some terrible things. He's also a violent man, which makes me despise him. So, and we'll get into how he was violent, but man, he was really a piece of garbage. And I think we could all learn some lessons about landlords and tenants' rights, like you said, Katie, from this story. Yeah. And that doesn't mean any of these tenants did anything wrong, because they didn't. And you shouldn't be killed over where you live. And that applies to a lot of places and a lot of things. Oh, for sure. And this is no exception. So I think you guys should stick around because this is really fascinating uh, and we have a lot of good information. Luckily, we were able to find some legal documents, which you guys know we love, absolutely love. So I think this case will be juicy. I think it'll be good. Um, I'm, I'm ready for it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. And without further ado, today we will be covering Jeffrey Kent Ferguson. Katie, would you mind giving me your sources for our case today? Liz, I wouldn't mind at all. Thank you. You're welcome. Touches my heart, really. Your politeness. 
So kind of you. I'm very blessed. My sources today include Murderpedia, Case Law, Hartford Current, WestportNow.com, and two articles from the Virginian Pilot from scholar.lib.vt.edu. Great. I also had Murderpedia, of course. It was good. I had Case Law Find Law. I had an article from Virginia Tech or vt.edu. And I also used an article from Westport Now. So, to start us off today, we're going to kind of just set the scene. Because this really is a story that is timeline-based and really is told in a story format. Classic. So we're just going to get right into it, explaining the real background information, and it's just all going to make sense in the end, but we have to get through it first. In 1995, there was a single-family home at 166 Portland Avenue in Redding, Connecticut. The home, which was owned by Jeffrey Kent Ferguson, was expanded and eventually converted into three units with the intention of renting out the units. You know, an apartment. Jeffrey, however, did not reside here. He actually lived, weirdly enough, in Powell's Point, North Carolina. To me, that was a little confusing because that's really far away. I didn't. I don't know if that's common for landlords to have properties so far away. You know, I was thinking about that too because every landlord that I've had has been pretty close because yeah. I would have to contact them for like maintenance issues yeah. or... I don't know. I, I was thinking, I guess they could mail him the check, but right. that's kind of far. And right. I don't know. I just feel like most good land, well, there's no good landlords, but most landlords, it would make sense for them to be of close proximity sure. so that they could address any issues. Yeah, absolutely. Even like with a property company, like I rent through a property company, there's people here at an office five days a week. Right. And there's an emergency line. So someone's there all the time. Obviously, this is 1995, so I think you bring up a good point. Of course, people can be late on checks because mail can be late. That was my first thought. Like, if he's not there to physically receive it, how does it work then? You know, I feel like there could be some miscommunications. For sure. And I think we are going to talk about that soon. So the way the house was set up, the first floor had two apartments, and the second floor was an entirely separate apartment. There was also a big two-story glass atrium on the side of the home that had a nice spiral staircase inside, allowing access to the second floor from the ground. All of the apartments were occupied in 1995. In the front, first-floor apartment lived Laureen Spear and her five-year-old son. In the back, first-floor apartment lived four men. Only one we know is identified. His name is Freddy Altamirano, and he was an immigrant from Costa Rica. He'll become important later. On the larger second floor apartment, three young adult men shared the living space. There was Scott Auerbach, 21, David Froelich, who was 22, and Jason Tresowitz, who was 22. Today's story revolves around the fate of the second floor apartment where the three men lived. Now, Scott and David lived in the apartment, and Jason was really crashing there. There was some work being done on his home, so he was crashing there, but they were all buddies, so it was like, best case scenario, slumber party all the time. Of course, they probably didn't call it that, but I like to imagine they were having some fun. The boys had been close-knit friends for a very long time. 
They were described as happy-go-lucky, generous, polite. They all grew up together. They were in Boy Scouts together, theater productions, and they were even, at this point, volunteer firefighters, which is a very noble thing to do. It seemed like they were really just, like, all-around good kids. I say kids, but, you know, they're young men, but they seem like good guys. And that's even though the neighbors later said that maybe they sometimes played their rock and roll a little too loud, but it is the 90s, and that's, like, the only kind of music guys like that would listen to. Let's be (laughs) real. You know that they had a massive CD collection. They had to. And probably big, big stereos. I'm sure of it. Scott and David had moved into the apartment together sometime in September of 1994. And it seemed like a pretty sweet deal, especially, you know, with Jason coming in and being like, what's up? I'm bunking in here. It was a lot of fun. There was a lot of space. They had some fun, whatever. Even if there wasn't a lot of space, who cares? They were just dudes hanging out. They didn't go to college. So this was like their dorm. Yeah, and I feel like it was also their first taste of freedom, too. Like, their first apartment together, their friends, they've grown up alongside each other. And it's it's nice. It's just fun. Yes, I think that's a good point. So, they often had two of their other buddies in their close friend group hanging out at their apartment. Sean Hultonen, who's 22, and another David, David Gartrell, 26, also often was at the apartment. And they were hanging out, tight-knit, like I said, just broing around. You know, that is until things got a little testy with the landlord and the hangout spot of their apartment kind of got a little, not scary per se, but a little sketchy. And not because of the boys, but because of the landlord, Jeffrey Kent Ferguson, as I talked about earlier, because he was not a good man, not just because of the greasy ponytail. But also because he was kind of a hot-headed dude who had a short temper and was often known to threaten people. And these young boys were no exception. In March of 1995, the three guys upstairs were late paying their rent. Late is a term that we use very loosely. Mm. It does not seem like they went over the deadline. It just seems like maybe it was due on a certain date and the check had not been received. Right. Some articles I read said that the check had bounced. Right. The boys were reliable. They had not yet paid their rent late. And it happens to the best of us. You know, if it happens once, twice, you know, it's not the end of the world. My first rent check when I moved in here, I thought I had successfully set up the automatic payment, but I didn't. So my first rent check was late. And I was like, oh, this makes me look so bad. I'm so sorry. But really, it was just because the automatic payment wasn't set up properly. It happens. To the best of us. Always. Jeffrey had asked his friend Christopher Given to go to the property and collect the rent that the three men owed. The tenants told Christopher that they would pay the rent to Jeffrey soon. Like, you know, it's coming. We're sorry for any inconvenience. Mm -hmm. Just tell him that it's coming. It'll be there. Christopher let his buddy Jeffrey know this, but this information really upset him and he got pretty pissed. And the thing is, too, is that when you have to send your friend to go relay this information, I mean, he was in North Carolina. That's a difficult deal as being a landlord for a house in Connecticut when you're living in North Carolina. Doesn't add up to me. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. 
Jeffrey decided that he had no other option but to evict the three men. What? Yeah, that was very abrupt of a decision. And I kind of disagree with it. I wholeheartedly disagree. That's unhinged. Because, <laughs> like, just all of a sudden you're like, the jig's up, boys. Like, enough is enough. And we'll learn later because of testimony from another tenant of his from the past. But you have time to get a late check-in before it's late. And these boys were not at that point by any means. It was like day one. Right. So they had plenty of time. Didn't matter to Jeffrey. On March 29th, 1995, Jeffrey drove all the way up from North Carolina to Connecticut. Once he got to the property, he entered the upstairs apartment when the boys were not home, removed all of the tenant's belongings, and placed them outside, scattered around the driveway, outside the building, and some things he put inside the glass atrium, but most of their belongings were outside. And I do want to say March 29th in New England, if it's not snowing, it's raining. Yep. And this day, it was raining <sighs> on the boys' belongings. Yikes. Freddie Altamirano, the tenant in one of the two downstairs apartments, like you said, Liz, mm-hmm. helped Jeffrey carry down one of the beds from upstairs. He was leaving no stone unturned in that apartment. He took out their clothing, their furniture. He ripped down photos and posters off the walls. He even went so far as to remove the thermostat. Illegal. Yep. And the toilet. Odd and also illegal. When I read that, my fucking jaw dropped. I couldn't even believe that. How can you take out a fucking toilet? First of all, how do you take out a toilet? Aren't there pipes and stuff? A. We know later that he is like a uh, self-contracted like handyman, so he must have known. But regardless, what? You're going to punish people by taking out the toilet? It's your home. You're ruining your own house right dingle butt like what an (laughs) idiot he then boarded up the door to the apartment with a big piece of plywood mr jeffrey clearly is not well versed in the law and tenants rights Mm. later the same day the three men came back to their apartment and found all of their stuff outside in front of the building and thrown thrown in the driveway in the rain yeah it wasn't like it was neatly placed he was just it was strewn about They then realized that they couldn't even get inside the apartment because the door was boarded shut, so they called police. Right. Police immediately started an investigation into the eviction process and whether Jeffrey had done so lawfully. Hint, he had not. The police thankfully came to the same conclusion and told the men that they could re-enter the building, which they did after removing the plywood themselves. Right. So now these guys are, they get into the apartment, great, they have to pry off this piece of plywood, and now they have to walk around picking up all of their shit that was thrown outside. Ridiculous. And as they're picking up their shit and they're putting two and two together, you know, oh, hey, I found your t-shirt over here, and hey, this poster's ruined, and everything's soggy. Yeah, like, okay, like, maybe all three of us can get this bed back up inside. Like, just ridiculous. So once everything was picked up and brought back inside... I'm sure a lot of it was ruined, but they came to the realization that they were missing about $3,000 worth of their stuff, which included 300 compact discs, a compact disc player, a video cassette recorder, and their toolbox. So, which honestly, I bet he used that toolbox to take the toilet out. Mm -hmm. And honestly, also, 
taking that much money worth, taking stuff worth that much money, I guarantee you with every bit of confidence that their rent check was not even a third of that. Especially in the 90s? No. No, no, no. It was probably, oh man, it was definitely less than $1,000. Right. And I think it's ironic that, you know, you said earlier the boys probably were playing their music too loud. There were some, not really complaints, but there were some comments made by neighbors like, yeah, you know, those boys, boys they sometimes, boys. Yeah, they've lost their rock music too loud. So I'm sure that the music situation was relayed to Jeffrey. So I do think it's ironic that he took a lot of their music and their mechanisms for playing said music out loud. I wonder if he also took this, like if he had, they had stereos, anything like that. I'm sure those were out in the rain too, probably really messed up. And he may have stolen all this stuff, but I'm sure there was more in damages as well. Absolutely. Oh, man. Reading Connecticut officials also notified Jeffrey of multiple possible building code violations, which would not have been noticed or addressed if the tenants hadn't gone to small claims court, which they did because $3,000 worth of their shit was stolen from them. Yeah. Let alone the whole issue with their stuff being thrown outside. Mm -hmm. They were wrongfully evicted from the apartment. The door was boarded up. So regardless, even if Jeffrey hadn't stolen all of their stuff, they still would have been going to small claims court, which is then you're right as a tenant. Hi, guys. Sure, of course. But they really were like, oh, fuck this dude, we're going to court. Genius move. This also got the attention of the fire marshal, which also brought to Jeffrey's attention the possibility of fire code violations. The men had reported that the apartment conditions were so bad that they had to use an outhouse as opposed to using their own bathroom, which I think... Because they had previously let Jeffrey know, like, hey, landlord, you're responsible for fixing stuff. This is your property. We're paying you rent to live here. Mm -hmm. The toilet won't work. We have to use a fucking outhouse in 1995. Please come fix this. Yeah. So I think he removed the toilet to spite them. Yeah. I think you're right on track with that. Investigation also found that they had no heat, which I'm sure they also complained about, hence why he removed the thermostat. Can't complain if there's no uh, proof that there's no heat. That the roof was leaking. Multiple fire hazards, of course. And we know that Jason was couch surfing, which is fine. But Scott and David had to sleep in their beds, shoved into their closets. That's how small and awkward this space was. Mm. And clearly, this whole entire house should not have been converted into separate units. Yeah. Clearly, it wasn't a good size for that. Maybe two. But... Regardless, not appropriate. And I'm even wondering if he even had the right to turn it into a multifamily home. Right. Because you do have to have permits for that. And there are zoning laws and shit like that. Jesus Christ. This dude. Idiot. Jeffrey was ordered to appear before the Reading Conservation Commission on April 18th, 1995. The day before the court date on the 17th, police applied for a warrant for Jeffrey's arrest so they could charge him with criminal lockout. Here's the thing. We're going to go through the events that took place. It's not super clear if Jeffrey knew there was going to be an arrest warrant out for him. I'm sure he probably had an idea. Because I think he realized once they were able to get back into their apartment that he kind of uh, fucked up. Didn't mean he was less mad. He still thought that all these guys, they were in the wrong. Because they didn't pay the check on time. This, that. He seemed like the kind of guy that no matter what you said, no matter what proof you had, no matter how wrong he was, didn't matter. He was right. Every time. 
And unfortunately, he had a violent side to him, and this would prove to be deadly. So, obviously, he was pissed about this. He had dealt with, quote, unruly tenants before, and, you know, they all fell for his evil ploys and his threats. But these men, they fought back, and he hated it. So on April 17th, 1995, when that arrest warrant was being drafted, Ferguson put a plan in place that would change the lives of many forever. That same day, April 17th, 1995, Jeffrey headed over to a car rental shop in Harbinger, North Carolina, and he rented a champagne-colored Ford Tempo. But don't worry, before he got too far, he removed the front license plate from the rental. That's not suspicious. And I'm pretty sure in some states, if not all, that's illegal. Correct. Yeah, you have to have a license plate on the front of your vehicle. And the back, if I'm not mistaken. You know, because it's important. You need to have that, like, identifier for things like this. Idiot. I don't know how he was driving from North Carolina to Connecticut without being pulled over. Thank you. Regardless. That being said, Jeffrey did drive straight to Connecticut, clearly brewing with anger in this rental car. And it wasn't until the next day, April 18th, that Jeffrey was seen again, at least according to witness accounts. The occupant of the first floor apartment in the front, Laureen Spear, the one who lived with her son, she went to get her mail at approximately 12.20 p.m., down at the end of her driveway, when she noticed Jeffrey, except he was driving in a random rental car. And it was obvious that Jeffrey saw her because as soon as they like locked eyes, he immediately did the thing where he like looked away and tried to drive past without her seeing him. Like he turned his head completely the other direction, which you wouldn't do if you're driving. Like you're supposed to look at the road. It was very sketchy because he was her landlord but also because he had a distinct greasy ponytail. Dead serious. So she was like, what is he doing? <laughs> she also made note that the car had a North Carolina license plate on the rear, which she did see. And that made sense because she knew that he lived in North Carolina. So maybe the car itself wasn't super weird because she didn't know him all that well, but the North Carolina license plate just made sense. Like, okay, yeah, that's him. That definitely was him. The ponytail. The car, great. So once Lorene had gone back inside, Jeffrey had been a little sketched out by her seeing him. So he drove around for a little while. And then eventually he came back around and parked his car against the wall of a synagogue that actually was connected with the property he owned. So this now multifamily residence. And he did this so he would hide the North Carolina license plate against the building. So... Upon first glance, you didn't know where this car was from because there was no front license plate because the skeevy bastard removed it. Clearly he had a plan in place. It was four in the afternoon now. And Freddie Altamirano, the one who lived in the rear apartment on the first floor, was watching TV. And suddenly it went black. That's annoying. It's the 90s. I think even then they had the same method of fixing things. Unplug it, replug it. I did the very same thing with my Wi-Fi router today. It worked, by the way. <laughs> so he went to try that, and it didn't work. He jiggled it around, nothing. The cable box, nothing. Well, 
didn't matter how many times he replugged, unplugged, because Jeffrey had gone around and cut not only the cable lines for the house, but also the telephone lines to the building. And then Freddie noticed Jeffrey. He was walking around the property, probably looking suspicious because he was on he was on a mission and he was doing suspicious things. So I imagine he looked kind of weird. And it got more suspicious when he watched Jeffrey get down and do something with an oil tank at ground level. And then Freddie watched as Jeffrey placed a ladder beside one of his windows, which then in turn gave him access to the roof that was just over his apartment. So he's standing in his window, like watching his landlord take a ladder to the apartment of the people above that he knows the landlord hates because his landlord made him help him remove some stuff from this apartment a few weeks before. And so he's sitting there, he's watching this guy. And he's like, what is happening? Like, this guy's up to something bad. And he, of course, knew who Jeffrey was because, again, he had met him several times. He helped him with that, moving out of the stuff weeks prior so he could confirm that was Jeffrey. Just to cover all of our bases. So, with the ladder placed very, very secretly and quietly against the window of another person, uh, Jeffrey found his way to a spot on the roof where he could get into the boy's apartment on the second floor through a sliding glass door. It's a really kind of weird design and setup, but regardless, he could get in there. And this is where Jeffrey entered the apartment and was quick to put his irrational and erratic plan into action. Within minutes of watching his landlord scale the side of the building with a ladder, Freddie heard gunshots. Can you imagine what he was thinking? Like, am I next? Probably, right? Right, especially because he put two and two together that his landlord just cut the phone and cable lines. Mm -hmm. Oh my god. Yeah. Inside of the upstairs apartment at the time was one of the tenants, 22-year-old David Froelich, and one of his friends, 26-year-old David Gutrell. Jeffrey shot David F. twice in the head before shooting David G. three times in the head. Mm. He then placed both of the men's bodies in the bathroom, placing David G.'s body on top of David F.'s. The other two tenants, 21-year-old Scott Arbeck and 22-year-old Jason Tresowitz, came home from work at about 5.45 p.m. and had brought with them their friend who frequented the apartment, like you said earlier, Liz, Mm -hmm. 21-year-old Sean Hilton. What the men didn't know was that their landlord was inside of their apartment waiting for them. Yeah. Ready to ambush. As they entered, Jeffrey shot them all. Sean was fatally shot twice, once in his head and once in his neck. Jason was shot a single time in the head, and Scott was shot twice in the head. Jeffrey then poured an accelerant on four of the five bodies before setting them all on fire. He also scattered the accelerant around the apartment as well as in the basement, which I thought was really interesting because when he was playing around with the oil tank, earlier at ground level, I wonder if the oil tank was located in the basement. Yeah, I bet you're probably right. Neighbors noticed something hanging from the staircase inside of the glass atrium and realized that it was the body of a man. They also, at the same time, realized that the building was on fire and that the flames were spreading quickly. Very. Somehow, civilians, rescuers, 
they got the man cut down and pulled him out of the building. He had gotten himself stuck on the spiral staircase, hanging there, trying to escape the second floor apartment. Mm. And he was identified as 21-year-old Scott Arbeck, who had somehow survived being shot in the head. Twice. My heart. All of these men goes out to them. But this poor boy who shot twice, sees all of his friends get shot and killed, and then sees, knows, most likely knows that he's been poured, he had accelerant poured on him, and then tries his best to escape. So brave. He was so brave. And I, oh man, this poor, poor young guy. Before he died, he told first responders, quote, Ferguson did it. Hero. As the building was burning, Jeffrey hopped in his rental car and drove south back to North Carolina. He stopped first in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, to call his father-in-law before making his way to his father-in-law's home the day after the murders. After visiting with him briefly, he spent the night at a motel before putting the front license plate back on the rental car and returning it. He had put a total of 1,929 miles on it. Yay. He was arrested later that same day, April 20th, on a fugitive warrant for charges of larceny and criminal lockout, which were the original charges that they had tried to get him on before, before this all started. Yeah. And it just so happened to be those charges would hold him in place where they needed him long enough so they could charge him with murder, because that is exactly what happened. Also arson, because uh, he set the house on fire. Duh. We know that. And it was pretty obvious right from the start that Jeffrey was responsible. How do we know this? Well, let's go over the recent events. Because he had this big feud with these tenants. He had taken all their stuff out. The police were called. Because of these things, environmental codes were proven to be violated. Fire codes were proven to be violated. He had to deal with the police. He was taken to small claims court. He now was charged with, of course, he was pissed. And he had a violent history. Somehow, this is mind-blowing to me, is that he was arrested peacefully. And this is mind-blowing to me, not because of the violent nature of his crime, but because of the violent nature of his history. He was a very violent, threatening man. Which tells me that he was using his words and his threats to appear bigger and stronger and kind of get his points across that he was some big tough guy. Yes. He needed that. Like for him, that was what he needed to get his point across. Which to also to me tells me, and probably you, Katie, that he was a giant pussy. <laughs> This man, I swear, I just want to, ugh, he's infuriating. What's that called? Napoleon syndrome? Maybe. Something like that. Where they're really small and they do bad things to act big. (laughs) Yeah, like they have to overcompensate for, and I don't know his height. No. I'm wondering if maybe he was not short, that there was something else about him that was short and small. Something. Just based on how yeah. he's acting and portraying Something himself. important that often we find this in men who have really big trucks, <laughs> with tall wheels, something like that. And honestly, there's not very many pictures of him. Most of them are just like of his face or his side profile. Yes. So I don't, couldn't even tell you if he was like short and fat, 
tall and skinny. I don't really know. But I think you're right, Katie. I think something in him was too small, whether it was physical or inward. And he just needed to be powerful. And this was how he did it. So apparently, besides the obvious, which was clearly this was Jeffrey responsible due to the recent history, the police received an anonymous tip that pointed them to Jeffrey. I don't know what it was exactly, but it was pretty obvious. And also the first floor tenant, Freddie Altamirano, also came forward and said, hey, I saw Jeffrey at the house. This is what I saw. The cable, the telephone, blah, blah, blah. The ladder outside my window. And they were like, okay, clearly this is this guy. It was also discovered during the investigation that Jeffrey had a history of threatening his past tenants. And once he was arrested and locked away, some of these tenants kind of stepped forward and told a little bit of their stories. First of all, in 1991, a man named Richard Barry Marshall rented an apartment from Jeffrey. He had an incident where he was late to rent. Okay. And Jeffrey came to the apartment and demanded the money. All right. When Marshall told him that he had the legal right to make payment up until the 10th of each month, which is how I learned this for this case, and that if Jeffrey tried to even lock him out of his apartment, he had the right to re-enter it. He told all this to Jeffrey. This pissed Jeffrey off a ton. He was like, fuck you. And it actually led him to directly threaten his tenant. And according to Marshall, Jeffrey said, quote, well, if you move back in, I'll break your fucking legs. What? Oh my God. I would never come home. <laughs> like zero to a hundred. Okay. I'd be like, you know what? My grandpa's ashes, leave them. Don't need them. My mom's locket from her childhood, keep it. I don't care. Like, what the hell? Shortly after that, Marshall left town for a few days and he returned to the apartment only to find, you'll never guess, guys, his stuff had been manually thrown out of the apartment, placed on the porch, around the yard, and also that Jeffrey changed all the locks. Okay, what a piece of shit. Marshall did threaten to call the police, in which Jeffrey replied, and I quote, Call the cops. I'll get my gun and go out in a blaze of glory. What the fuck? It was... I think in a good decision by Marshall, he never went back to that apartment. I hope he got his stuff. It sounds like it was outside of the building anyway, so I hope he was able to grab what he needed and go. But that is terrifying. When even like calling the cops is not a valid threat. Oh boy. That's very scary. In 1993, another tenant of Jeffrey's named Troy Harvey was late in paying his rent. He received a call from Jeffrey the next day demanding the rent and saying that if he didn't pay rent, all of his belongings would be removed and the door would be boarded up. Troy told Jeffrey that he had rights as a tenant and that if he came home to the door boarded up, he would notify the police. Jeffrey then stated that he would, quote, blow his head off with a shotgun. Troy sent the payment to Jeffrey by express delivery the next day and moved out as soon as he possibly could. Smart move. I just also want to point out, a lot of these people back then really knew their rights as tenants, and that's very impressive. I don't know if that was more widely known, but can you imagine having that said to you, the owner of the place where you live? Nothing would feel safe. That's awful. 
I don't think I'd sleep at night. No. No. Because they have the keys. Absolutely. Mm-mm. I'd be worried about my safety, my cat's safety, my snake, and my lizards. Come on. I can't take all of them with me in my pockets in a fast... <laughs> Ugh. Terrible. Additionally, Jack Froelich, the father of one of the victims, recalled that even before his son and his friends moved into the apartment, Jeffrey was already beginning to threaten them. According to Jack, Jeffrey told the boys if they caused any problems, he would arrive to the apartment and be armed. What is up with this guy? He's really trying to make himself look like the biggest douche possible. And it's working. I can't. I can't. In court, Jeffrey tried to say that the court improperly denied him his right to cross-examine the prosecution's star witness, Freddie Altamirano. Oh. Who do you think you are? You don't get to cross-examine anybody. You're the one on trial. What an idiot. I hate him. I hate him. Why did he say that, Katie? Why? (laughs) It was revealed in court that the four remaining bodies inside of the apartment, because Scott, they found and removed and he died at the hospital, Mm -hmm. the four remaining bodies had severe burns, although police were able to determine that all died from gunshot wounds to the head and, in one boy's instance, the neck, Mm -hmm. from a twenty-two caliber semi-automatic pistol that Jeffrey owned. Interesting. The gun to this day has never been found. Interesting. It's probably anywhere from Connecticut to uh, North Carolina. Mm Mm-hmm. During the trial as well, there was some more evidence that was found. Obviously, the fire was pretty obvious that it was arson. So they realized that what was used to cause this fire? Oh, accelerant. So they looked into the rental car and they found some petroleum-based accelerant on the floor mat of the car. And when they compared that to the clothing on the charred bodies of the victims, they found that it matched. And that was like nail in the coffin. Mm-hmm. Perfect fit. Right there. Before the trial, police met with Freddie again and asked him to describe what Jeffrey had been wearing the day of the murders. Freddie told them that he was wearing, quote, a long-sleeve coffee-colored t-shirt, dark jeans, and a dark-colored baseball cap. Police then showed Freddie a photograph of a man captured on video surveillance footage from a mobile gas station just a short distance from the property at just after 6 p.m. while the building was engulfed in flames. Mm. The photograph showed a man with a ponytail wearing a dark, long-sleeve t-shirt, dark pants, and a dark-colored baseball cap. The quality of the photo was pretty shitty as it was from video surveillance. Mm -hmm. So Freddie told police that the man in the photo looked very similar to Jeffrey, but he couldn't say for certain given the quality of the photo. Fair. Totally fair. Great answer. Great answer. What's interesting is that this same individual was seen again at the same gas station a day later at three o'clock in the afternoon, which means that this could not be Jeffrey because he would have been well on his way to North Carolina. Mm -hmm. During the trial, Jeffrey kept trying to have the photograph from the video surveillance footage admitted into evidence because it would deny him being there. Like, it would completely throw off the whole case. Mm -hmm. The state kept denying this as they felt like it wasn't relevant. Mm. Jeffrey also tried to say that because Freddie had immigrated to the United States illegally, he used a term that I will not say, Mm. that he was biased And it would be in Freddie's own best interest to testify in a way that would benefit the state. I can't. The state called BS and shut that down pretty quickly. 
It doesn't surprise me that this guy is racist as well. Absolutely. Typical. Oh, and like, immigration status, what may have you, Freddy was looking out his window. You pitched a ladder next to this guy's window when he was home. Literally. And if you hadn't cut his cable line, like, he might have just been watching TV. Like, he might have never... He would have never noticed. He literally saw you scale the side of the, like, pitch a ladder, climb the ladder, go upstairs, sliding glass door open, and then gunshots. Dumb. Dumb man. And guess what? His immigration status? Um, wouldn't you think that would make him not want to testify in a U.S. court? Thank you. Try again, buddy. Nice, nice effort. Stupid. In court, Jeffrey also tried claiming that the court proceedings fell under double jeopardy. I think because they arrested him for the criminal lockout and then this was the... Mur- I don't know what his thought process was. I think he was just grasping at straws. Yeah. But this very much was not double jeopardy and the court proceedings continued. Yeah. Much to his chagrin. He was grasping for sure. <laughs> at the end of his trial, Jeffrey was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. As he should. He should be rotten and rotten and rotten because, God, what a terrible piece of shit. Oh, man. Just before he was sentenced, he read out loud from a letter that his wife Carrie wrote. Yes, because he was married and also had a young child. Like a toddler. Within the letter were lyrics to Celine Dion's Because You Loved Me. No. Immediately, no. After quoting passages from the letter, including some of the lyrics to the song... Jeffrey sat down and then was silent the rest of the hearing. He probably realized how stupid that sounded, and that that probably made it worse. Because, <laughs> wow. At the same sentencing hearing, Dale Gartrell, parent of 26-year-old David Gartrell, stated, May you rot from the inside out. I love that. I'm using that. That's genius. And true. I hope he does, too. Mm-hmm. Which, I think he is. Because in May of 2003, Jeffrey was found unresponsive in his Newtown, Connecticut prison cell. He was rushed to the hospital in Danbury, where he was pronounced dead. He apparently died of asphyxia due to ligature strangulation, but the police clarified that he did not hang himself. Either way, doesn't matter. The fucker took the easy way out. Hope he rots forever. He is burning in hell right as we speak. Hot, hot, hot hell. And I wish he served more time because he did, like, a measly five years. Right. Not even. For taking five lives. Mm-hmm. Come on, man. What a pussy. I hate him. I hate him so much. Those poor kids. I know I keep saying kids and most of them are older than me. But I just can't. Like, I just picture them as nerds listening to rock music and just hang out playing video games, probably. Yeah. They really were kids. Most of them were, what, 21 and 22? There was one 26-year-old? Yeah. But yeah, they were just starting out their adult lives. They were so excited to be in their own apartment. Mm -hmm. And they were really contributing to the... Everyone in the community loved them. Yes. Volunteer local firefighters. Are you kidding me? Awesome. We love it. Just such good kids. And everybody in the community, they're like, yeah, you know, they could blast their music a little too loud, but at the end of the day, they were great neighbors, kind to everybody. Just really, really good kids. Yeah. Awful. So, guys, of course, we want to know what you think about this case. Please send us your thoughts and your opinions. 
You can find us on Instagram at truecremeny. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email at truecremeny at gmail.com. We also, of course, have a website, truecrimene.com. You could go to our contact page and use our handy-dandy submission tool to send us your thoughts on this case, other cases we have covered, even though no other case we have covered is quite like this one. Mm -hmm. You can be anonymous if you so choose. You can leave your name if you so choose. But either way, if you have a case suggestion for us, we would love to hear what you would like to hear us cover. Absolutely. If you want to scroll down just a wee bit further, you will see a button that says thank you. That will bring you to our buy us a coffee page. You could buy myself a coffee and Liz a non-coffee related beverageino. But at the end of the day, you do not have to spend a single cent on us. We appreciate you guys so much for being here and for listening and hearing us get these cases out there. If you're thinking, you know, you still want to show us some love and appreciation and not spend any cash money, which we would prefer that you do not. Mm. You could go to our Spotify if you are a preferred Spotify user and leave us a star rating. Or you could go to our Apple Podcast page if you are more of an Apple Podcast kind of listener and leave us a star rating and or a written review. But at the end of the day, you do not have to do any of that. None of the above. Just being here and listening means so much to us. And thank you guys so much. Well said, Katie. We love you guys. And uh, with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you.